The Story of Siegfried by James Baldwin Adventure One Mimer, the Master At Santon in the Lowlands there once lived a young prince named Siegfried. His father, Sigmund, was king of the rich country through which the lazy Rhine winds its way just before reaching the great North Sea, and he was known both far and near for his good deeds and his prudent thrift. And Siegfried's mother, the gentle Sigelind, was loved by all for her goodness of heart and her kindly charity to the poor. Neither king nor queen left aught undone that might make the young prince happy or fit him for life's usefulness. Wise men were brought from far-off lands to be his teachers, and every day something was added to his store of knowledge or his stock of happiness. And very skillful did he become in warlike games and in manly feats of strength. No other youth could throw the spear with so great force or shoot the arrow with surer aim. No other youth could run more swiftly or ride with more becoming ease. His gentle mother took delight in adding to the beauty of his matchless form by clothing him in costly garments decked with the rarest jewels. The old, the young, the rich, the poor, the high, the low, all praised the fearless Siegfried, and all vied in friendly strife to win his favor. One would have thought that the life of the young prince could never be aught but a holiday, and that the birds would sing and the flowers would bloom and the sun would shine forever for his sake. But the business of man's life is not mere pastime, and none knew this truth better than the wise old king Sigmund. All work is noble, said he to Siegfried, and he who yearns to win fame must not shun toil. Even princes should know how to earn a livelihood by the labor of their hands. And so while Siegfried was still a young lad, his father sent him to live with a smith called Mimer, whose smithy was among the hills not far from the great forest. For in those early times the work of the smith was looked upon as the most worthy of all trades, a trade which the gods themselves were not ashamed to follow. And this smith, Mimer, was a wonderful master, the wisest and most cunning that the world had ever seen. Men said that he was akin to the dwarf folk who had ruled the earth in the early days and who were learned in every lore and skilled in every craft. And they said that he was so exceeding old that no one could remember the day when he came to dwell in the land of Sigmund's fathers. And some said, too, that he was the keeper of a wonderful well or flowing spring, the waters of which imparted wisdom and far-seeing knowledge to all who drank of them. To Mimer's school, then, where he would be taught to work skillfully and to think wisely, Siegfried was sent to be in all respects like the other pupils there. A coarse blue blouse and heavy leggings and a leathern apron took the place of the costly clothing which he had worn in his father's dwelling. His feet were encased in awkward wooden shoes, and his head was covered with a wolfskin cap. The dainty bed with its downy pillows, wherein every night his mother had been wont with gentle care to see him safely covered, was given up for a rude heap of straw in a corner of the smithy, and the rich food to which he had been used to gave place to the coarsest and humblest fare. But the lad did not complain. The days which he passed in the smithy were mirthful and happy, and the sound of his hammer rang cheerfully, and the sparks from his forge blew briskly from morning till night, and a wonderful smithy became. No one could do more work than he, and none wrought with greater skill.' 
the heaviest chains and the strongest bolts for prison or for treasure house were but as toys in his stout hands, so easily and quickly did he beat them into shape. And he was alike cunning in work of the most delicate and brittle kind. Ornaments of gold and silver studded with the rarest jewels were fashioned into beautiful forms by his deft fingers. And among all of Mimer's apprentices, none learned the master's lore so readily, nor gained the master's favor more. One morning the master, Mimer, came to the smithy with a troubled look upon his face. It was clear that something had gone amiss, and what it was the apprentices soon learned from the smith himself. Never, until lately, had any one questioned Mimer's right to be called the foremost smith in all the world. But now a rival had come forward. An unknown upstart, one Amelius in Burgundy land, had made a suit of armor which he boasted no stroke of sword could dint and no blow of spear could scratch, and he had sent a challenge to all other smiths, both in the Rhine country and elsewhere, to equal that piece of workmanship or else acknowledge themselves his underlings and vassals. For many days had Mimer himself toiled alone and vainly trying to forge a sword whose edge the boasted armor of Amelius could not foil, and now in despair he came to ask the help of his pupils and apprentices. "'Who among you is skillful enough to forge such a sword?' he asked. One after another the pupils shook their heads, and Veliant, the foreman of the apprentices, said, "'I have heard much about that wonderful armor and its extreme hardness, and I doubt if any skill can make a sword with edge so sharp and true as to cut into it. The best that can be done is to try to make another war coat whose temper shall equal that of Amelius's armor. Then the lad Siegfried quickly said, I will make such a sword as you want, a blade that no war coat can foil. Give me but leave to try. The other pupils laughed in scorn, but Mimer checked them. You hear how this boy can talk? We will see what he can do. He is the king's son, and we know that he has uncommon talent. He shall make the sword, but if upon trial it fail, I will make him rue the day. Then Siegfried went to his task, and for seven days and seven nights the sparks never stopped flying from his forge, and the ringing of his anvil and the hissing of the hot metal as he tempered it were heard continuously. On the eighth day the sword was fashioned, and Siegfried brought it to Mimer. The smith felt the razor edge of the bright weapon and said, This seems indeed a fair fire edge. Let us make a trial of its keenness. Then a thread of wool as light as thistledown was thrown upon water, and as it floated there, Mimer struck it with the sword. The glittering blade cleft the slender thread in twain, and the pieces floated undisturbed upon the surface of the liquid. "'Well done!' cried the delighted smith. "'Never have I seen a keener edge. "'If its temper is as true as its sharpness would lead us to believe, "'it will indeed serve me well.' "'But Siegfried took the sword again and broke it into many pieces, "'and for three days he welded it in a white-hot fire "'and tempered it with milk and oatmeal. "'Then, in sight of Mimer and the sneering apprentices, he cast a light ball of fine-spun wool upon the flowing water of the brook, 
and it was caught in the swift eddies of the stream and whirled about until it met the bared blade of the sword which was held in Mima's hands, and it was parted as easily and clean as the rippling water, and not the smallest thread was moved out of its place. Then back to the smithy Siegfried went again, and his forge glowed with a brighter fire, and his hammer rang upon the anvil with a cheerier sound than ever before. But he suffered none to come near, and no one ever knew what witchery he used. But some of his fellow pupils afterward told how, in the dusky twilight, they had seen a one-eyed man, long bearded and clad in a cloud-gray kirtle and wearing a sky-blue hood, talking with Siegfried at the smithy door. And they said that the stranger's face was at once pleasant and fearful to look upon, and that his one eye shone in the gloaming like the evening star, and that when he had placed in Siegfried's hands bright shards like pieces of a broken sword, he faded suddenly from their sight and was seen no more. For seven weeks the lad wrought day and night at his forge, and then, pale and haggard, but with a pleased smile upon his face, he stood before Mimer with the gleaming sword in his hands. It is finished, he said. Behold, the glittering terror, the blade Balmung. Let us try its edge and prove its temper once again, that so we may know whether you can place your trust in it. And Mimer looked long at the ruddy hilts of the weapon, and at the mystic runes that were scored upon its side, and at the keen edge which gleamed like a ray of sunlight in the gathering gloom of the evening. But no word came from his lips, and his eyes were dim and dazed, and he seemed as one lost in thoughts of days long past and gone. Siegfried raised the blade high over his head, and the gleaming edge flashed hither and thither like the lightning's play when Thor rides over the storm clouds. Then suddenly it fell upon the master's anvil, and the great block of iron was cleft in two. But the bright blade was no whit dulled by the stroke, and the line of light which marked the edge was brighter than before. Then to the flowing brook they went, and a great pack of wool, the fleeces of ten sheep, was brought and thrown upon the swirling water. As the stream bore the bundle downwards, Mimer held the sword in its way, and the hole was divided as easily and as clean as the woolen ball or the slender woolen thread had been cleft before. "'Now, indeed!' cried Mimer. "'I no longer fear to meet that upstart Amelius. "'But if his war-coat can withstand the stroke of such a sword as Balmung, "'then I shall not be ashamed to be his underling. "'But if this good blade is what it seems to be, it will not fail me, and I, Mimer the old, shall still be called the wisest and greatest of smiths. And he sent word at once to Amelius in Burgundy land to meet him on a day and settle forever the question as to which of the two should be the master and which the underling. And heralds proclaimed it in every town and dwelling. When the time which had been set drew near, Mimer, bearing the sword Balmung and followed by all his pupils and apprentices, wended his way towards the place of meeting. Through the forest they went, and then along the banks of the sluggish river, for many a league to the height of land which marked the line between King Sigmund's country and the country of the Burgundians. It was in this place, midway between the shops of Mimer and Amelius, that the great trial of metal and of skill was to be made. And here were already gathered great numbers of people from the lowlands and from Burgundy, anxiously awaiting for the coming of the champions. 
On the one side were the wise old Sigmund and his gentle queen, and their train of knights and courtiers and fair ladies. On the other side were the three Burgundian kings, Gunther, Gernot, and Gazelher, and a mighty retinue of warriors led by grim old Hagen, the uncle of the kings and the wariest chief in all Rhineland. When everything was in readiness for the contest, Amelius, clad in his boasted war coat, went up to the top of the hill and sat upon a great rock and waited for Mimer's coming. As he sat there, he looked to the people below like some great castle tower, for he was almost a giant in size, and his coat of mail, so skillfully wrought, was so huge that twenty men of common mold might have found shelter or hidden themselves within it. As the smith, Mimer, so dwarfish in stature, toiled up the steep hillside, Amelia smiled to see him, for he felt no fear of the slender gleaming blade that was to try the metal of his war coat, and already a shout of expectant triumph went up from the throats of the Burgundian hosts, so sure were they of their champion's success. But Mimer's friends waited in breathless silence, hoping and yet fearing. Only King Sigmund whispered to his queen and said, Knowledge is stronger than brute force. The smallest dwarf who has drunk from the well of the knowing one may safely meet the stoutest giant in battle. When Mimer reached the top of the hill, Amelius folded his huge arms and smiled again, for he felt that this contest was mere play for him and that Mimer was already as good as beaten and his thrall. The smith paused a moment to take breath, and as he stood by the side of his foe, he looked to those below like a mere black speck close beside a steel-gray castle tower. "'Are you ready?' asked the smith. "'Ready,' answered Amelius. "'Strike!' Mimer raised the beaming blade in the air, and for a moment the lightning seemed to play around his head. The muscles on his short, brawny arms stood out like great ropes, and then Balmung, descending, cleft the air from right to left. The waiting lookers-on in the plain below thought to hear the noise of clashing steel, but they listened in vain, for no sound came to their ears save a sharp hiss, like that which red-hot iron gives when plunged into a tank of cold water. The huge Amelius sat unmoved, with his arms still folded upon his breast. But the smile had faded from his face. "'How do you feel now?' asked Mimer in a half-mocking tone. Rather, strangely, as if cold iron had touched me, faintly answered the upstart. "'Shake thyself!' cried Mimer. Amelius did so, and lo! He fell in two halves, for the sword had cut sheer through the vaunted whirlcoat and cleft in twain the great body encased within. Down tumbled the giant head and the still folded arms, and they rolled with thundering noise to the foot of the hill and fell with a fearful splash into the deep waters of the river, and there, fathoms down, they may even now be seen when the water is clear, lying like great gray rocks among the sand and gravel below. The rest of the body with the armor which encased it still sat upright in its place, and to this day travelers sailing down the river are shown on moonlit evenings the luckless armor of Amelius on the high hilltop. In the dim uncertain light 
one easily fancies it to be the ivy-covered ruins of some old castle of feudal times. The master, Mimer, sheathed his sword and walked slowly down the hillside to the plain where his friends welcomed him with glad cheers and shouts of joy. But the Burgundians, baffled and feeling vexed, turned silently homeward, nor cast a single look back to the scene of their disappointment and their ill-fated champion's defeat. And Siegfried went again with his master and his fellows to the smoky smithy, to his roaring bellows and ringing anvil, and to his coarse, fair, and rude hard bed, and to a life of labor. And while all men praised Mimer and his knowing skill and the fiery edge of the sunbeam blade, no one knew that it was the boy Siegfried who had wrought that piece of workmanship. But after a while it was whispered around that not Mimer, but one of his pupils had forged the sword. And when the master was asked what truth there was in this story, his eyes twinkled and the corners of his mouth twitched strangely, and he made no answer. But Valiant, the foreman of the smithy, and the greatest of boasters, said, It was I who forged the fire edge of the blade Balmung. And although none denied the truth of what he said, but few who knew what sort of man he was believed his story. And this is the reason, my children, that in the ancient songs and stories which tell of this wondrous sword, it is said by most that Mimer, and by a few that Valiant, forged its blade. But I prefer to believe that it was made by Siegfried, the hero who afterwards wielded it in so many adventures. Be this as it may, however, blind hate and jealousy were from this time uppermost in the coarse and selfish mind of Valiant, and he sought to know how he might drive the lad away from the smithy in disgrace. "'The boy has done what no one else could do,' said he. "'He may yet do greater deeds and set himself up as the master smith of the world, "'and then we shall all have to humble ourselves before him as his underlings and thralls.' "'And he nursed his thought and brooded over the hatred which he felt towards the blameless boy. "'But he did not dare to harm him for fear of their master, Mimer. "'And Siegfried busied himself at his forge, where the sparks flew as briskly and as merrily as ever before, "'and his bellows roared from early morning till late at evening.' Nor did the foreman's unkindness trouble him for a moment, for he knew that the master's heart was warm towards him. Oftentimes, when the day's work was done, Siegfried sat with Mimer by the glowing light of the furnace fire and listened to the sweet tales which the master told of the deeds of the early days, when the world was young and the dwarf folk and the giants had a name and a place upon earth. And one night, as they thus sat, the master talked of Odin, the All-Father, and of the gods who dwell with him in Asgard, and of the puny menfolk whom they protect and befriend, until his words grew full of bitterness, and his soul of a fierce longing for something he dared not name. And the lad's heart was stirred with a strange uneasiness, and he said, Tell me, I pray, dear master, something about my own kin, my father's fathers, those mighty kings who, I have heard said, were the bravest and best of men. Then the smith seemed pleased again, and his eyes grew brighter and lost their faraway look, and a smile played among the wrinkles of his swarthy face as he told a tale of old King Volsung and of the deeds of the Volsung kings. Long years ago, before the evil days had dawned, King Volsung ruled over all the land which lies between the sea and the country of the Goths. 
The days were golden, and the good fray dropped peace and plenty everywhere, and men went in and out and feared no wrong. King Volsung had a dwelling in the midst of fertile fields and fruitful gardens. Fairer than any dream was that dwelling. The roof was thatched with gold, and red turrets and towers rose above. The great feast hall was long and high, and its walls were hung with sun-bright shields, and the door nails were of silver. In the middle of the hall stood the pride of the Volsungs, a tree whose blossoms filled the air with fragrance, and whose green branches thrusting themselves through the ceiling covered the roof with fair foliage. It was Odin's tree, and King Volsung had planted it there with his own hands. On a day in winter King Volsung held a great feast in his hall in honor of Sigir, the king of the Goths, who was his guest. And the fires blazed bright in the broad chimneys, and music and mirth went round. But in the midst of the merrymaking the guests were startled by a sudden peal of thunder, which seemed to come from the cloudless sky, and which made the shields upon the walls rattle and ring. In wonder they looked round. A strange man stood in the doorway and laughed, but said not a word, and they noticed that he wore no shoes upon his feet, but that a cloud-gray cloak was thrown over his shoulders, and a blue hood was drawn down over his head. His face was half hidden by a heavy beard, and he had but one eye which twinkled and glowed like a burning coal. And all the guests sat moveless in their seats, so awed were they in the presence of him who stood at the door. For they knew that he was none other than Odin, the All-Father, the King of gods and men. He spoke not a word, but straight into the hall he strode, and he paused not until he stood beneath the blossoming branches of the tree. Then forth from beneath his cloud-gray cloak he drew a gleaming sword and struck the blade deep into the wood, so deep that nothing but the hilt was left in sight. And turning to the awestruck guests, he said, A blade of mighty worth have I hidden in this tree. Never have the earth folk wrought better steel, nor has any man ever wielded a more trusty sword. Whoever there is among you brave enough and strong enough to draw it forth from the wood, he shall have it as a gift from Odin. Then slowly to the door he strode again, and no one saw him any more. And after he had gone, the Volsungs and their guests sat a long time silent, fearing to stir, lest the vision should prove a dream. But at last the old king arose and cried, Come, guests and kinsmen, and set your hands to the ruddy hilt. Odin's gift stays, waiting for its fated owner. Let us see which one of you is the favorite of the All-Father. First, Sigir, the king of the Goths and his earls, the Volsung's guests, tried their hand, but the blade stuck fast and the stoutest man among them failed to move it. Then King Volsung laughingly seized the hilt and drew with all his strength, but the sword held still in the wood of Odin's tree. And one by one the nine sons of Volsung tugged and strained in vain, and each was greeted with shouts and laughter as, ashamed and beaten, he wended to his seat again. Then at last Sigmund, the youngest son, stood up, and laid his hand upon the ruddy hilt, scarce thinking to try what all had failed to do, when, lo, the blade came out of the tree as if therein it had lain all along loose. 
and Sigmund raised it high over his head and shook it, and the bright flame that leaped from its edge lit up the hall like the lightnings gleaming, and the Volsungs and their guests rent the air with cheers and shouts of gladness, for no one among all the men of the mid-world was more worthy of Odin's gift than young Sigmund the Brave. But the rest of my story would be too long to tell you now, for he and his young apprentice sat for hours by the dying coals and talked of Siegfried's kinfolk, the Volsung kings of old, and he told how Sigir, the Goth king, was wedded to Signy the fair, the only daughter of Volsung, and the pride of the old king's heart, and how he carried her with him to his home in the land of the Goths, and how he coveted Sigmund's sword and plotted to gain it by guile, and how, through presence of friendship, he invited the Volsung king to visit him in Gothland as the guest of himself and Signy, and how he betrayed and slew them, save Sigmund alone, who escaped, and for long years lived an outlaw in the land of his treacherous foe. And then he told how Sigmund afterwards came back to his own country of the Volsungs, and how his people welcomed him, and he became a mighty king, such as the world had never known before, and how, when he had grown old and full of years and honors, he went out with his earls and fighting men to battle against the hosts of King Linji the Mighty, and how in the midst of the fight, when his sword had hewn down numbers of the foe, and the end of the strife and victory seemed near, an old man, one-eyed and bearded, and wearing a cloud-gray cloak, stood up before him in the din, and his sword was broken in pieces, and he fell dead on the heap of the slain. And when Mimer had finished his tale, his dark face seemed to grow darker, and his twinkling eyes grew brighter as he cried out in a tone of despair and hopeless yearning, O oh, past are those days of old and the worthy deeds of the brave, and these are the days of the homestayers, of the wise but feeble-hearted. Yet the Norns have spoken, and it must be that another hero shall arise of the Volsung blood, and he shall restore the name and the fame of his kin of the early days, and he shall be my bane, and in him shall the race of heroes have an end. Siegfried's heart was strangely stirred within him as he hearkened to this story of ancient times and to the fateful words of the master, and for a long time he sat in silent thought, and neither he nor Mimer moved or spoke again until the darkness of the night had begun to fade and the gray light of morning to steal into the smithy. Then, as if moved by a sudden impulse, he turned to the master and said, you speak of the Norns, dear master, and of their foretelling, but your words are vague and their meaning very broad. When shall that hero come, and who shall he be, and what deeds shall be his doing? Alas, answered Mimer, I know not, save that he shall be of the Volsung race, and that my fate is linked with his. And why do you not know? returned Siegfried. Are you not that old mimer in whom it is said the garnered wisdom of the world is stored? Is there not truth in the old story that even Odin pawned one of his eyes for a single draught from your fountain of knowledge? And is the professor of so much wisdom unable to look into the future with clearness and certainty? Alas, answered Mimer again, and his words came hard and slow. 
I am not that mimer of whom old stories tell, who gave wisdom to the All-Father in exchange for an eye. He is one of the giants, and he still watches his fountain in far-off Jotunheim. I claim kinship with the dwarfs, and am sometimes known as an elf, sometimes as a wood sprite. Men have called me Mimer because of my wisdom and skill and the learning which I impart to my pupils. Could I but drink from the fountain of the real Mimer, then the wisdom of the world would in truth be mine, and the secrets of the future would be no longer hidden. But I must wait, as I have long waited for the day and the deed and the doom that the Norns have foretold. And the old strange look of longing came again into his eyes, and the wrinkles on his swarthy face seemed to deepen with agony as he arose and left the smithy. And Siegfried sat alone before the smoldering fire and pondered upon what he had heard. End of Adventure Read by Rick Kistner for Lit to Go on the web at fcit.usf.edu.